0: I uh, hear I almost lost my job last week. Gordon McDonald did too well. I usually tell him to cool it just a little bit. Uh, but uh, several of you have mentioned to me how, how wonderful it was last week. And so we've invited him back for next year at the same time. So uh, we don't know if he's going to be able to come yet or not. But I'm so glad you enjoyed uh, Gordon and what he had to say last week. And uh, he is a very fine Christian thinker and teacher. Well, we're back in the minor prophets and we're in Joel and somewhere around uh chapter 2 verse 14 return to me with all your heart verse 12 rend your heart and not your garments verse 13. And uh we'll pick up right there actually with with verse uh, 13 uh Joel and uh, here, what we're seeing is that God is saying through Joel, hey, cut the baloney, uh, you know, no pretensions. Stop pretending like you're repenting, like you're changing your life. Let's really change it. Rend your heart, tear your heart, not just your garments. So let's, let's do it from the inside out. And we looked at what it means to rend your heart. And specifically, uh, we started looking at what is biblical repentance, if you remember and here are some of the things we said. We said, first of all, it is a gift of God. Just like faith is a gift of God. We exercise faith. We exercise repentance. But what we've discovered from the Bible is that we exercise these things because God gives them to us as gifts. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Even this faith is a gift of God. And here in Acts chapter 11, we saw it comes from God. So he's to be thanked if you have the gift of faith and repentance. At the same time, you must believe and must repent. It's something you must do. It's a a mystery, believe me. Uh, Then secondly, we saw that it is absolutely necessary for salvation. You can't really be saved at the end of the day uh, from the wrath of God. You can't be saved from yourself in this life and all of its uh, gripping uh, greed and lust unless you know this gift of repentance. Jesus went about preaching repentance. And taught His apostles to do the same as we saw in those texts. And then we saw what it consists of. We wanted to look at the nature of repentance. What is it? We said, first of all, it is a, it is a belief in the Gospel. Uh, we saw even with David in Psalm 51, that classic psalm of repentance that David, first of all, expresses his faith. But Joel does the same in chapter 13. A return to the Lord your God for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You can't turn from what's got you, from what's gripped you, until you behold the mercy of God in Christ. So it begins with beholding Christ as a merciful Savior. Secondly, it involves conviction of sin. No excuses, no baloney, uh, no victimization. Uh, I have sinned, said David, when he was confronted uh, by Nathan the prophet. He just simply confessed what he had done. He didn't say oh, I've lived out the consequences of my dysfunctional background. Uh, He said, I've sinned. I take responsibility for it. No excuses. So repentance begins with beholding the mercy of Christ. Secondly, the taking ownership for what we have done. No excuses. Then we saw, thirdly, that it involves a sorrow for sin. Not sorrow that we got caught, but sorrow for the sin. Why are we sorry? Because it's going to destroy us? Well, it will eventually, but the primary sorrow comes from having grieved God. God made us and redeemed us. He is our friend. He loves us. And we have spit in His face just just this week. So we look at sin that way as a grievance in our relationship with someone who loves us and gave Himself for us. So that, thirdly, is constituent to repentance. Then we saw there is a confession of sin. First of all, to God. And then we talked about how Protestants especially need to learn how to confess to one another. Human confession. James speaks about this in chapter 5. And I would have to say that if there's something that we cannot talk to anybody on the face of the earth about, you must have some question in your mind whether you've really talked to God about it and done business with Him. For when you have really been freed up from the guilt and the shame of your sin, then in confidential sort of priestly, pastoral relationships, counseling relationships, you can open up your heart because as ugly as it all may be, you're no longer guilty nor ashamed. So our confession to God very much affects our confession to one another in an open life. Now some guys overdo it. There's some things that we should not talk about. I, you know, when I speak to a group of high school kids, I don't tell them about all the rotten, ugly, terrible things I did when I was a high schooler. Uh, that wouldn't be encouraging. Why should I do that? But if I'm Going through a confession of sin with a brother who's a confidant, I may very well tell him about those ugly, uh, awful, no-good things I did in high school. So uh, we see that it involves confessing with our lips. We speak out our need of Christ. That's what it shows when we confess our sin. We know we need righteousness from someone outside ourselves. As long as we are bottling it up or defending ourselves, we're implicitly saying, hey, I can handle this on my own including my righteousness. I'll work this out. That's the tendency of most men. I'll I'll take care of this. I'll handle it myself. But when you confess, you are confessing you can't handle it by yourself. You've got to have outside help. You've got to be rescued. Then we just had launched into a hatred of sin. And we saw that not only are we sorry for it, but we asked the Lord to give us an active hatred uh, for that which had bound us up and caused us to turn our back on Him. We cultivate a hatred for sin. All kinds of sin. But especially the sins that seem to be our patterns that we get into. And everybody here has got a sin pattern. Everybody here has got a syndrome. I don't know what yours is. I could take a few minutes and describe mine. But we've all got it where there are particular sins that seem to be repetitive or particular temptations that continue to allure us because there's a weakness there. And look, anybody who's fighting a battle is going to know, number one, what are his strengths and going to know what are his weaknesses. Or if you're playing a football game, you better believe that coach knows what his weaknesses are. And he is taking care to compensate for those weaknesses. Anybody who's in a battle or competing knows what his weaknesses are. If he doesn't, he's not going to win. It's just that simple. Same with you in your spiritual battle. If you don't know what your weaknesses are, you don't know what your syndromes are, you don't know what your repetitive temptations are, you're not going to be very successful at this. But with those weaknesses and those particular sins, you develop a hatred for it. If you find yourself allured by the Internet pornography, you cultivate an absolute hatred for that entire industry and everything with it. And you build up in yourself all the reasons why you should hate it, that industry and that sin and that exploitation of women and that d- destruction of marriages and families. You should hate it. It's having an absolutely destructive effect upon this society. Well, if you're struggling with it individually, you can find many reasons to hate it. Uh, if, if you're lacking any, let me know. We'll help you out. But no matter what the sin is, you can cultivate a hatred for it. When you see its ripple effects and how it destroys and how it dishonors God, you should be familiar especially with your repetitive sins, you should be familiar with its ripple effects and its destructive implications in society so that you can increase your hatred for that sin. That's all part of biblical repentance. Now, we're moving into new territory. We want to talk about renouncing the sin and endeavoring to obey. So, we don't say, The Lord, you know, I really hate this internet pornography. Click, 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 click. Boy, I just really hate this stuff. It's terrible, you know. No. You hate it, so that you renounce it. And it may even be that in your accountability groups, uh, you may need to say, "I just want you guys to know, I'm publicly in front of your old faces renouncing the sin of greed, or the sin of selfishness, uh, the sin of anger out of control, whatever this you can renounce it and just just say, I'm having nothing to do with that. I am putting, turning my back to it. If we don't then we can end up being like the ones in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus talked about who at the last day come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in Your name and spoken prophecy in Your name and done many mighty deeds in Your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from Me, I never knew You. How could that be? People who preached in His name? People who cast out demons? Yeah, He said, because the ones who come to heaven with Me are those who do the will of My Father. The ones who... Actively are renouncing their sin. doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that the trajectory of your life has turned from this direction to this direction. There's been a change in behavior from the heart, change in affections, change in your nature. So you are renouncing sin. You are being done with it. And we need all the help that we can get. And guys need accountability. Uh, you need to have several friends where you can talk about what it is you're trying to renounce. And renounce it with them and ask them to help you renounce it. Because we, we're weak. And when we know our weaknesses, we get on the team. And we ask our teammates to help us. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us. It's an all-out war. Uh, renouncing sin. Then lastly, there is what we call restitution. Oftentimes, when we have sinned, we have created debts. Either before God or before men. And we need to be sure that we are prepared to make restitution. If I I stole $10,000 from you and you caught me and I said, gee, I'm really sorry. And look, I'm not only sorry because you know I took money from you and made you mad at me, but I'm sorry that God's mad at me and I'm sorry that I dishonored Him and I'm really sorry. And I want you to know I renounced that sin. And I want you to know I'm never going to do that again. And I want you to know I hate that sin. I hate stealing. And I've been to the counselor and I'm all healed up now. And I'm, you can trust me. I'll never, ever do that again. You say, where's my $10,000? <laughs> oh, yeah, that. Uh, so when there has been real biblical repentance, there is an honest to goodness approach to try to make restitution where damage has been done. And gentlemen, there's no way I can make restitution for all the sins I've committed. There are so many, and I've damaged so many people in my life, and it just day by day, you know, there are more of them, they just pile up. There's no way I can make up for all that. I'm trusting Jesus Christ to do that. But when I'm aware of something that I can do to to make restitution with a brother, that's exactly what I should do. You know, Uh, The Bible makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. Matthew chapter 5. If your brother holds something against you, stop your worship. Worship is the most important thing a human being does. And Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar. Just leave worship and go and be reconciled to your brother. These relationships are extremely important. And if you have done something that was dishonest, maybe not illegal, but it was unethical, and you know you were trying to take unfair advantage of someone, they may not even know it, but you just go, just make restitution. I remember when I became a Christian and I looked back at my expense accounts and went, oh, no. <laughs> I've, been, I've been shading expense accounts now for how many years, you know, three or four years and, as a young man. And I just went back and made the best estimate I could. And uh, I didn't submit expense accounts for, at all for about four or five months. I mean, this was really hurting me. But I just quietly just did not submit expense accounts. And then my boss called me in one day and said, "Sandy, I hadn't seen an expense account from you for I don't know how many months." I said, "Yeah, I'm just I'm just letting you go." What do you mean you're letting go? You're paying your expenses. I said, "Well, Bob, I I think I I was dishonest on some other ones. I'm just making it up." It was it was extraordinarily embarrassing. He he's you know pulled it out of me. Uh, it probably was that day when my boss Bob Danny's realized this this thing about Jesus was serious. <laughs> And after that, he and I had several conversations about Jesus Christ and what difference it makes in the workplace. I wouldn't have designed it that way. It's too humiliating. But if there's something that you've done, no matter how embarrassing it is, how shameful it is to you, and that's that's shameful to me, uh, that as a non-Christian I would have done that. And I can blame the fact that every, you know, I had. There was one of my fellow salesmen who was about 15, 20 years ahead of me. Uh, I remember he came in one Monday morning he said, you know, Every week on the expense account, the first 50 is mine. (laughs) It's just kind of normal behavior, you know. So I could blame it on that if I wanted to. But there's no no excuse. There's no excuse for ripping somebody off. There's no excuse for having slandered somebody, talking behind their back, uh, trying to destroy them. Uh, There's no excuse for uh, telling people lies and misleading them. No excuse for those things. So we make restitution. And if restitution is nothing else than just simply saying to a brother, look, I just want you to know, I'm really sorry. And I know that this effect in your life was caused partly at least by what what I did. So, first of all, um, we make restitution to the Lord by confessing our sins. But sometimes it involves public confession to vindicate God's name. David did that in Psalm 51. He had publicly sinned uh, with Bathsheba. And by the murder of her husband, Uriah, and so he made public confession. You know, the church is not very good at this, and it can be overdone. But, you know, if one of us ends up in the newspaper, arrested for fraud, indicted, and then convicted, it would seem to me that if that happens to you, that you'd probably want to go back to your pastor and say, you know, it's splattered everywhere. This is no secret. There's nothing about discretion anymore. And, uh, you know, at the end of some worship service, I'd like to be in an executive session. I ask everybody to go home except for the members of this church. And I'd like to confess publicly what I've done. What does that do? Well, it basically says, look, uh, we're not sweeping things under the rug. I'm deeply sorry for what I did, not only against the Lord, but against his church, because I besmirched his name and the name of this church throughout this community. I don't know when the last time you ever saw something like that. I don't think I've ever seen it. But I have seen people indicted and convicted for fraud. But we need to be aware that confession and sorrow and hatred of sin and making restitution includes making restitution for someone's name, God's name, the church's name, my family's name. You know, If that happens to you, you've affected your family name and all your descendants. Do you realize what you've done when that that happens? I'm not saying you can't recover. I'm not saying your kids won't get over it. David got over it fine. He was a man after God's own heart how did he get over it? He got over it through dealing with things in a responsible, open manner. I'm not talking about being indiscreet. I'm saying that as the old Puritans used to say, your repentance ought to be as famous as your sin. So however famous the sin is, the restitution that goes with restoring someone's name ought to be just as broad. And it also includes paying damages for our neighbor. You remember here in Luke 19, you remember Zacchaeus? Comes down out of that little tree. The little man comes out of the tree. He's done some awful, horrible, no good things. And as soon as he meets the Lord, uh, uh, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Which is to say, I'm going to have fellowship with you. I am going to put my name and my good housekeeping seal of approval on you. Zacchaeus had never had that. He was a tax collector. He was the worst. He was the bottom of the barrel. And he immediately arose and said, I'm going to give a huge portion of my wealth to the poor and I'm going to repay double those that I've defrauded. First thing out of his mouth was a public confession and an intention to make restitution. Absolutely astonishing, because this so rarely happens. People join churches all the time, make professions of faith. It's just a bunch of baloney. Unless there is an intent to be held accountable for a holy life, including the financial consequences, the reputational consequences, whatever the consequences are. We have guys who are breaking up their families and committing adultery, and then they just go from one to the next. No accountability whatsoever. No statement of sorrow. No being held accountable by the public or by the church or even by their friends. They just just sweep it under the rug and go right on. not, Not so with Zacchaeus. Because what Zacchaeus understood was if Jesus comes to my house, He's going to be seen as one who approves a ripoff artist like myself. And I want to make it clear to anyone who's looking at Jesus that when He comes into a person's life, He cleans them up. He doesn't leave them the same way that they are. So Zacchaeus was first of all concerned about the reputation and the name of Jesus Christ. And so when you join a church or make a profession, you have His name on you, and there ought to be a concern for His reputation above all else. And you know what you guys say in business? First time someone tells you they're a Christian, you better button up your back pocket. Lock your briefcase. You know? Rip off artists Telling you they're Christians. And and I kind of agree with that. You know? If if that's how you have to prove yourself is by just telling someone you're a Christian, then they ought to watch out. But when they find out that you are a Christian, they ought to be able to say, yeah, that that explains it. You know? Here's a good man. He's honest. So watch out for the reputation of Jesus Christ. And when our sins occur, let us remember that The key restitution involved in all of this is restitution for the name of Jesus Christ by our public confession. Now, let's move on to the second half of Joel. We have seen that this whole thing is about the day of the Lord. This is the concept that's being emphasized in Joel. And first of all, basically the big picture was this. That if we're going to find our voice in society and find our voice in the workplace, in the marketplace, and with our friends, if we're going to know who we are... There's several key things that have to be in place. In Hosea, we saw we've got to understand this gospel. The scandal of the gospel, the splendor of the gospel, the saving power of the gospel, and so on. In Joel, we're saying we've got to understand the nature of time. That the time as we know it now is going to come to an end. It's going to have a conclusion. It's linear. And we have to live in light of the linear nature of time that, as Stephen Hawking said one time, The great Stephen Hawking. People had gathered around from all over the place. The auditorium was full of thousands of people waiting to hear Stephen Hawking speak through his little computer-assisted device. And here's what he said when everything had quieted down. This was his first statement. The lecture was going to be on time. It was a lecture on time, the nature of time. Big philosophical issue. And here's what Hawking said. Time moves forward. Wow. Wow. You can hear a pin drop. Everyone, everyone's saying, that's profound. <laughs> the Bible says, that Stephen Hawking got it right after all those years. I'm glad. Time moves forward. Not in circles. Not in kind of a cloud. It moves forward. It's linear. Grew good. The scientific community is getting this now. It moves forward. Okay. So it moves forward. It comes to a conclusion and the wise man is a man with perspective who sees cause and effect. Remember that? A wise man, is, they're usually older because they've had more time to see the effects that come from causes. If you're lazy, you'll generally be poor. If you hang out with the wrong crowd, you'll probably do the wrong things and so on. It's cause and effect. That's wisdom. And the deepest wisdom is one that sees ultimate cause and effect. Sees the timeline as it goes into eternity. So we've seen that Joel's message is, Live in light of the day of the Lord. We had this locust infestation. He says there's coming another day with locusts from Chaldea. The Babylonians are going to come and take you off. And then, of course, there's another day coming. The day of the Lord when the king shows up and the battle is over. That's the day of the Lord. And so the king of kings is going to show up one day and the battle is over. Live in light of that day, he's saying. The first thing that we saw, the first implication in Joel 1.1-2.17 is to Repent. If there's coming a day of accounting, if the big accountant in heaven is finally going to pull out all the records and there's going to be an accounting, then get your accounts straight so that when they're published and you're judged on the basis of them, let's get these accounts right. Now we know the only way to do that is through trusting Jesus Christ who will reckon to your assets all of His assets and will take all of your liabilities and reckon them to Himself. That's the way you get your account straight. So get it straight because he's coming back to judge. That's re- that's Joel's message. Now, the second thing he's talking about when we come to the second part is to rejoice. Hey, lighten up, guys, if Jesus Christ is coming back and your accounts are going to be completely clean and you can know that simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. If that is the case, then lighten up. You know, no more Eeyore lifestyles around here. We've got a lot we're living for. You're getting ready to go on the biggest vacation of your life for eternity. Doing whatever you want to do for as long as you want to do it. That's what heaven's going to be like. So let's let's have joy in our hearts. This is the whole message. And we're going to see in the first part of it, this is 2.18 through 32. This is the rest of chapter 2. We'll see that if we return to the Lord, the day of the Lord will bring blessing to us. And here's the key verse. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. Verse 18. And that will involve, first of all, he will renew our environment in verses 19 through 27. And that's what you see here in Joel 19 2, 19 through 27. Uh, he will renew the ground. It will be fruitful. Uh, you get that in verse 19 A. Then in 19b, he will remove the shame. In verse 20 and 21, it will be a safe land. You know, whereas now they're looking at an imminent invasion from Babylon. He said, one day you're going to be safe. And then lastly, he says, the environment will be a godly environment. This is something God's going to do. If you look at verse 27 with me, you get to the end of that section. Then he says, then you will know that I am in Israel that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. If you look up at verse 26, you have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. See how he's removing all shame. Removing all fear. Removing all ungodliness. Now in verse 27, you happen to get the key concern that Joel has, that God has through Joel, for the people. What is the key sin for which they need to repent? Here it is in this verse. This is the key. Verse 27, when he says, You will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. This is the key to the sins of Jerusalem, to the sins of Judah, at the time that Joel is writing. They had other gods. It's just this simple. They didn't even get, they didn't get to the, the second table of the law about obeying your parents and not committing adultery and not murdering each other and not telling lies and all that kind of stuff. They didn't get there. They didn't get to the part about the Sabbath or not profaning the name of the Lord you know, uh, commandments 3 and 4. They didn't get past the first commandment. They were blowing the first commandment. Now, what's involved in the first commandment? I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the back of your study Bible to page 2199, 2,199. Sounds like a discount. Uh, 2199, and you come to the larger catechism, and I want you to see what is described here as the duties and the uh, commandments that are involved in this first commandment. Look down at the bottom of page 2199, and you'll see, uh, question number 104 in the larger catechism. What are the duties required in the first commandment? Well, the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God. Okay? It's not somebody else's God. It's your God. All right. And there is no other. You must acknowledge that. Secondly, to worship and glorify him accordingly. Here's how you do it. By thinking, uh, that should be meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him. Believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to Him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please Him, and sorrowful when in anything He is offended, and walking humbly with Him. How you doing? <laughs> I, just, I think I just got damned uh, reading that. And that's what the law does to us. One thing it does, it not only gives us the pattern for how we're we're supposed to be living, but it tells us right off the bat, hey, you need Jesus. (laughs) Because nobody here has fulfilled that perfectly between the time you got up in the dark this morning and got here. You've you've broken those those things. You need help. You need salvation. You need forgiveness. But being forgiven now, how do you want to live your life? Well, here you get a description of it. Look at 105. What are the sins forbidden? In the first commandment, the sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism in denying or not having a God idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one or any with or instead of the true God and not having and and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, whoops. Misapprehensions, false opinions, false opinions about God is a breach of the first commandment, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious, searching into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will or affections upon other things and taking them all from him in whole or in part vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, and insensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God, using lawful means and trusting in lawful means, carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, Deadness in the things of God. Estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God. Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. Sorry, Roman Catholics, these Presbyterians got, you'll say they got a little carried away there. They were making a statement in their time that they felt was true. All compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions. Making men the lords of our faith and conscience. Sliding and despising God and His commands. Resisting and grieving of His Spirit. Discontent and impatience at His dispensations. Charging Him foolishly for the evils He inflicts on us. And ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do. To fortune. Oh, I was lucky today. Breach of the first commandment. (laughs) Oh shucks. Did it again. Idols, ourselves, or any other creature. Now you say, man, did these... Did these puritans have nothing else to do? Well, they didn't have TV. You know, what can I say? They, just, they sat around and thought about the first commandment. But you know what? You can check the biblical references on, you know, after each one of those paragraphs and just see for yourself. What does, what's God's standard for the first commandment? What does, he, what does He consider a breaking of the first commandment? Well, it's probably a whole lot more than we thought. And that's, that's all I was seeking to do is just let us know. There's a lot in the Bible about putting God first and putting God alone as the Lord of your life, a lot. And we want to be sure that we're cultivating that kind of care. And that's what was not happening in the day of Joel, as you see it in chapter 2, verse 27. Now, he not only will renew the land, especially ourselves, but he will renew us. And he emphasizes this. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it by his spirit. You see this in this classic text. Let's look at it. Verses 28 uh, through the end of the chapter. Let's read this. This is Joel 2, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Gentlemen, this, is, this text is quoted about nine times in your New Testament. It's a classic text. Why is it? <clears throat> because Joel is showing us The great day of hope that is in the future. When God is going to do a new thing and turn this whole world around. And do you realize He's already begun His work? Do you realize that 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, that was what was happening? Nothing less than this. The great day of the Lord has been inaugurated already. That we are already in the last days. That the beginning has already come. That the Spirit has been poured out in His church so that now men and women prophesy, young and old, even our young babies are telling us things about Jesus and about the end of times that show that they have wisdom way beyond their years. That God has poured out His Spirit on His church and made them the transforming agent in this world so that now one-third of the world is professing Jesus Christ at the day of the apostles with 100 million people in the world at that time. There was just this little handful of embattered disciples who were fishermen and former tax collectors, what power would they have to change the world? And now through 2,000 years, the Gospel has gone to every continent on the face of the earth. You realize this is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Messianic age. This was the age to which all the prophets looked with great anticipation. What would it be like when Messiah comes and the Spirit is poured out? And we've already seen the beginning of it, but we ain't seen the end of it yet. The best is yet to be only now do we have the down payment as it were and what is the down payment on our ultimate glory the down payment says the apostle paul in ephesians chapter 1 and second corinthians chapter 1 the down payment the earnest is the holy spirit and by taking him into your life you are getting the foretaste of the great day when the environment is totally renewed and you are totally transformed with no sin and no longer any temptation either And the whole environment is full of people who are the saints of God who are perfected. That is what you have just a little taste of right now by giving your life to Christ and asking God to take up residence in your heart. And that's where the power for the Christian life comes from. This is how you find your voice is that you're given a vision into some things in the future. You don't know everything. If you did, you'd probably commit suicide because it's so great. Who would want to hang around here? So God doesn't tell us too much. He just tells us enough to give us our voice. To give us our direction. To give us our purpose. And to give us an eager anticipation to see Him face to face. And He gives us the power to hate our sin and to renounce it and to turn away from it and to make restitution with the things of this world. Using the currency of this world to buy friends for the next world is what He says in in the Gospels. So we learn. we, We learn the real meaning of things. We learn the real destiny of this world. We get that from knowing the last day and the incredible renewal They will be given to us at that day. But it's a down payment now by His Spirit. Ezekiel speaks of it. Jeremiah speaks of it. This is the great day that is coming. It will be men and women, young and old. Gentlemen, this is the reason that in the church it is so vital for us to be on the cutting edge of gender equality in the right way. It's so important that the church be on the cutting edge of racial justice, of economic justice, Because this is a sign that the Spirit has come. That we're the ones who respect our kids. We're the ones who care for them and honor them. Because they're our future brothers and sisters. And we're the ones who honor women and hold them up and exalt them. And listen to them. Unless they're your wife, of course. Uh, We listen to them. Even our wives. Because the Spirit has been poured out on male and female. There's no longer a club of male prophets as there were, where it was in the Old Testament, largely. There were some female prophets in the Old Testament, but largely men. No, now the women speak too, with truth, and we're to listen to it. And uh, then there'll be signs and wonders, and you can look in the text of the Scriptures to see how Jesus picks up on this theme to say this is an earth-shattering event. That's basically what's being said. And it will be for salvation when He comes to renew us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, all whom the Lord calls, all these ideas are saying He will pull His people together. He will save every single one of them who calls on His name, including you. This morning, if you just simply say, Lord, I give my life to You. I ask You to forgive my sins. I receive Jesus Christ as Savior and I ask You to take away all my sins. Get me set on that path to that ultimate day. He'll hear the weakest, most feeble cry of the worst possible sinner you can imagine, and this very day pour out his Spirit in that man's life and make him his own. That's how gracious he is. And that's the reason that Joel is saying in chapter 2, look, God is full of mercy. He does not hold grudges against His people when they come to Him. And he's saying that to you today as well. Now lastly, let's look at chapter 3 and we find that if we return to the Lord... The day of the Lord will bring judgment to our enemies. You say, well, that boy, that really cheers me up. Well, you know, in a certain way it does because what's happening in your life is your natural tendency is to take vengeance against those who've, who have done evil against you. It's just the natural response. I mean, just turn on the TV, watch a baseball game next year, and, uh, oh, pure, poor Astros. I couldn't help but pull for them there at the end. Yeah, I know the 1917 was a long time ago for the White Sox, and I'm really happy for them, but it's four Astros. Just couldn't get it, couldn't get it going. Anyway, watch a baseball game, and uh, a pitcher hits a batter, and he gets angry. What do you expect to happen the next inning? You know, it's the code in baseball. If you're a pitcher, if one of your hitters got hit by the other pitcher, what are you going to do? You've got to hit another one, right? You've got to hit one yourself. Why? Well, a little discipline there. So it's quid pro quo, tit for tat. You look at life, it's that way. Look at, Watch a football game. You know, Somebody hits, makes a dirty play, what's going to happen? He's going to get hit the same way before that game is over. We're built this way. You know, it's what we, we call justice. Uh, but what you find in the Scriptures is that there's a cure for this. And it is in realizing that God one day is going to do all the judging of everything that's ever happened to you. And and Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, you know, Christians not only love our neighbors and love our brothers as as Christ has loved us, we are the people who love our enemies. Yuck! How do you do that? I'm going to love my enemy. Just think about their destruction at the end. (laughs) I mean, this sounds terrible. But he says, look, if you think about what's coming their way as a result of messing with you, one of his people, you will not feel vengeance toward them. You'll feel pity toward them. Really, you will. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 73 says, when I looked at the prosperity of the wicked, I was terribly confused. He was depressed. He said, I almost lost my way. My feet almost slipped off the path when I saw how they were getting away with murder. They're so happy. They're sleek. They're strong. They don't have a care in the world. The wicked. Until he said, I entered the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Gentlemen, if you will take some time to worship God, take some time to let your mind be pressed into the heavenlies and into the future judgment of God in all of its awesome power. And if you will just turn the pages of Revelation, a few of those pages that we studied last year, and remind yourself about the God of heaven who's going to bring justice to every single person, you will stop your envy of the wicked. It's it's God's cure. And I suggest we all get cured. And then we're not in business to defend ourselves or to take vengeance on people who mess with us. We're in business to explain to people they have someone far more important than ourselves to deal with. And that the, the real problem and concern in their life is whether they've gotten things straight with him, not with us. That's the cure. And that's the reason it's important for us to meditate for just a few moments about the destruction of the wicked. And that they'll just clear all this up. And you won't feel like now you have to go out here and destroy all those people who've been trying to destroy you. It'll take care of that if you just contemplate this. And you can say, oh, I don't want to talk about the, the wicked being destroyed. And yeah, you don't want to contemplate. You just want to go out and destroy them yourself. And you just you watch that. People who want to deny God's judgment of wickedness and wicked people are the very people who want to destroy wicked people themselves. So where does love and compassion and patience come from? It comes from the loving God taking up residence in your heart, number one. Number two, it comes from knowing justice is going to be handled by God at the last day. I don't have to handle this. He will. Future judgment awaits our enemies. You see that all throughout these first 16 verses. Their deeds against God's people are remembered. God does not forget when you have been attacked. He will remember it all. Their deeds against God's people are repaid. That's the two divisions of this third chapter. And all you have to do is look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10, through and you'll see what Paul says about this last day, that is coming. It's absolutely awesome. And we need to remind ourselves every once in a while of the awesome nature of it. Listen to these verses in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled. And to, uh, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. They will be judged with blazing power and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Gentlemen, there's no greater tragedy than that. You and I need to walk from here with pity and compassion upon those who are attacking you, especially those who are attacking you because you are a Christian. They deserve special pity. And that's the reason you need to remind yourself. That'll give you perspective. That'll give you voice. That'll give you that voice of Jesus among the oppressors. And uh, probably in our history, there's no better way to look at it than to look at the African American church when they were under bondage. You get some of the clearest gospel songs and some of the clearest gospel messages you'll ever hear in this country that have emerged out of a people who were oppressed. And they look to Christ for the answer. And they look to Christ for ultimate vindication and vengeance. How do you think Martin Luther King could preach the messages he did? Messages of love and forgiveness and reconciliation if he didn't know in his mind that there is a judgment that is coming. God's going to take care of the enemies. My job is to love them and lay down my life for them. That's where your voice is going to come from. That's where the clarity of your thinking is going to come from. And that's where your joy is going to come from when you're suffering. So we have wonderful examples just around us. Then by contrast, your future blessing awaits us. In these last five verses, we see at least these seven things. Look at that. Just blessing just poured out on the people of God uh, as a result of this last day. So the contrast that's being shown us is that on the last day, there are going to be goats and sheep. There's not going to be geep. Nothing in the middle. It's goats and sheep. There's going to be a division between those who are God's people on, on the right hand and those who have been His enemies on the left. The problem is that because of the fall in sin in in the Garden of Eden, we all have come into this category, the goat category, unless through Christ we get our righteousness through faith and we end up in the sheep category. Those who end up in the sheep category who are the followers of God, who have also not only been forgiven their sins, but given the gift of repentance. And those two go together. If you've been forgiven your sins, you're given the gift of repentance. Look at this last gift, uh, or next to last. You're given forgiveness, but you're also given fellowship with God. You're given justice. You're given holiness. You see the gifts that come? It's not just your environment that's loaded uh, for bear, loaded with all the goodies that we carnally are looking for. That will be there too. But there's going to be a change in our nature. We will have holiness and justice. Anyone who doesn't want holiness and justice will not like heaven. Because it's going to be full of holiness and full of justice. Let justice pour down like waters. It'll be a flood of justice and equality. And we'll speak more about this when we get to Amos next week. And by the way, we're now officially one week behind. (laughs) And we'll catch up next week and the week after as we look at Amos, who is so concerned about this issue of justice and what it looks like. And there are some desperately important issues that have to do with justice in your workplace that we need to address next time. But you'll see here that there is a renewal of the environment and a renewal of the person that makes it a blessed place to live. Now, gentlemen, what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, for us to live a fruitful life, the first thing we've got to do is to be heavenly minded. Get your minds on Christ. So as you're walking through the sludge of today, as you're walking through your own disappointments with your own performance, your own self today, remember the first thing is press your minds into heaven. Realize that one day you're not going to have to deal with this. You're not going to fail anymore. You're not going to flunk your, moral, your own moral standards anymore. That's going to be over one day. Press your minds into heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul says that one day Christ will be revealed in glory. Guess what? At that time, you also will be revealed Paul says you'll be revealed. Right now, you are cryptically in Christ. Your identity is not known. You have an alias. You you, you look like just an ordinary person. If you're in Christ, you're not just an ordinary person. You are a glorified person living in unglorified flesh right now. And it's just waiting to burst out. When will you burst out? Here's how you get perspective you realize you're going to burst out. When Christ bursts out, when He comes back from heaven physically, makes Himself known, He will also at that moment glorify you and all the world will know who you really were. That you are a saint. They don't know it most of the time now because we look like everybody else. That day we will actually look like the Lord Jesus Christ and the angels will be tempted to bow down and worship us. Now that's how great God's people are. And so if you want to rejoice no matter what your circumstances. You rejoice in the things that are just about to come. And we said last week, we come in here at the dark of the morning and we leave and it's just dawning outside. And that's the way it is right now. This day is dawning. Paul says we live at the end of the night. The day is almost here. That's the time in which we live. That's perspective. When you have that perspective, you get a voice. It has an edge on it because you have anticipation and you know that judgment is coming and you know that the richest blessing of the entire universe is coming and your heart is full of anticipation and you're leaning forward. You're not leaning back. You're looking up. You're not looking down. Leaning forward and looking up, that is the perspective of one who believes the message of Joel. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God and especially for this message in Joel. And we pray that You'll help us to find our voice in our families, in our workplace, in our churches, in our community. Help us to take on the perspective of the prophetic person. Because now You have made all of us prophets. Your Spirit has been poured out on young men and old men. We have dreams and visions now. We have the same gifts that the prophets had in the Old Testament. And so just as Joel was given Your Word and given it to live out and to proclaim, we pray that we, Lord, your prophets in this generation may believe what you say and take it into the world in which we live and be that countercultural, eagerly anticipatory person who lives in the sludge with a light on our countenance, in our countenance, because we know the day is dawning and the end of this age has almost come. So Lord, thank you for this message of Joel Please help us to repent and to rejoice as those who know their God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents. Yes, sir.